cliffcentral.com. All right, it is time for Collectomania. I know this is uh, a favorite part of the show for some people. It's definitely one of my favorite things. We've been talking already this morning about this, uh, this, this family who found a statue in their garden that's worth 10 million pounds. I mean, some collections are probably approaching that. Some of the collections in South Africa, probably very valuable. I think certainly the man who we're talking to this morning is an expert in his field, of philately, and he is on the roll of distinguished philatelists of Southern Africa, which is an actual list of the people who know what they're talking about when it comes to this. His name is Ian Matheson, and he is um, he's going to join us today and tell us a little bit about his stamp collection and about how this can apply and appeal to people of all ages, from all kinds of backgrounds, people who are interested in collecting often start with stamps because it's something which is quite accessible. And although stamps are not such a a big thing anymore, we don't send that much mail, it is still something that we can all get into. That's one of the reasons we want to have Ian on. Ian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Cliff. Lovely to see you. Nice to see you. And and first of all, um, you know, it's always good to have uh, collectors on the show, but we haven't had a stamp collector yet. And often when you think about collecting, Stamp collecting is the first thing that pops into your mind. Why do you think that is? Well, I think past generations it was. Nowadays, the kids are forgetting about it. They don't, they don't even know what a stamp is. Right. I, mean, we uh, don't, I said already we don't use mail as much uh, these days. So, so how, how enduring is this going to be 100 years from now, do you think? Well, I don't know. People are still collecting Etruscan coins, aren't they? There's not many Etruscans around. Uh, so it depends on how interesting we make it. Yeah. Uh, the story at the moment is that when people say, you know, he's a stamp collector, uh, we get just what you were talking about. People roll their eyes. Uh, at least I know now I can charge them with condescending behavior and send them to the labor courts. Absolutely you can. And and listen, we've had collections of far stranger things than stamps. How did you start off collecting stamps? When did it all begin? Well, well it began actually rather a long time ago. It was 1957. Yeah. And uh, I was living in Malaya at the time. And Malaya had their Uhuru, their uh, Mardeka in 1957, their independence. Mm-hmm. And they issued sets of stamps. And my father and a friend of his from the office sent me first day covers with these new stamps. Mm -hmm. I must say, I've never really been turned on by first day covers. They're they're (laughs) the sort of things that grannies buy for grandchildren, hoping one day they'll be valuable. (laughs) And in fact, they're just for lighting fires with. uh, Because there's so many more than there ever are collectors. But these arrived at my house. But mine came with an extra. You see, one of dad's assistants in the office, a fellow called Sam Sudin, Mm -hmm. he came around to talk to me about first day covers. And as a young school kid, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. But to make it more interesting, he brought all sorts of other paraphernalia. You see, either he or his father, his brother had been a, a POW under the Japanese. Yeah. And he started to show me mail that had come from POW camps. He showed me savings cards that he as a kid had collected the local stamps and saved to pay for the Japanese effort. He showed me propaganda leaflets that had been dropped from the aeroplanes over the Malays to try and convert them to the communist cause. And he presented me so much of this stuff 
that I'm afraid the first day covers, which I still have, 1957, the first day covers paled into significance, and I was interested in the story. Phenomenal. You know, who were these communist insurgents? What was going on? And, uh, and the interest was fantastic. And you could pick it up. Kids were playing with, like, monopoly money, but it was Japanese occupation banknotes in those days. Because there, there were millions, billions of dollars of surplus junk going around that had no value, like Zimbabwe dollars. Yeah. And, uh, and so we, we were interested, and I had the collection of note. And my friends in the class had first day covers, uh, and I had something interesting. And in fact, in 2014, I eventually sold, because I have many collections now, I eventually sold my Malayan collection with possibly one of the best ever Japanese occupation sections uh, that had ever been put together. You know, what's what's amazing about this is that I thought stamp collecting was a fairly unitary thing that there were the, you know, you'd collect stamps from like coins from all over the world. And, you know, if you, if you had a collection which spanned over perhaps many different territories or many different years, that that was considered valuable. But the way you're talking about this, you said the Malay occupation section of that collection, which is just Japanese occupation of Malaya. Sorry, yes. that's correct. Uh, this is, this is extremely niched. And and there are, oh, there course. must be categories within categories within categories in stamp collecting, which are extraordinary and varied in every possible way. I mean, this is this is I know I sound like an idiot uh, for for someone like you who's who's appraised of these things, but I had no idea it was so complicated. Well, you choose your own topic, you choose your niche. Uh, some years ago in South Africa, I realized that many old collections that people had put together had one or two stamps on the back that said entertainment tax on them. (laughs) And when I asked colleagues, I said, what is this entertainment tax? And nobody knew anything about it, really. There were no books written. Yeah. And so we started probing. I went through the government gazettes, and I found the taxation. And from 1917 here, we had to buy a little stamp, a tax stamp, and stick it to every cinema and theater ticket. And that applied until the 1960s. (laughs) And the stamp stamp was meant to be torn in half by the usherette. Right. And so uh, nobody's going to keep half a stamp. So they were very rare. But occasionally they didn't tear them. And people kept one or two. And they never had enough to make an exhibit. And I made it uh, a mission to gather as many of these as possible together. And in fact, I wrote a book on it a few years ago. And no longer is this considered back of the book it's mainstream it's part Jeez. of a main collection what are those what are those worth now because as you say most of them are torn in half and there aren't that many around anyway what what is a, a, an yeah. entertainment tax stamp worth well when i started they were free people said oh i found these in a book yeah. and you know there was no there was no value attached but now we're paying thousands for the rarer ones wow so tell me about how it all started because a stamp is effectively a kind of currency um, it, it was, it's a receipt. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and, and you would use it for mail. Most of us are familiar with, with stamps in mail, if at all. But over history, there must have been many, many different uses for stamps. Absolutely. I, I, I started with postage stamps, and then I was interested in what, what they call postal history, the history around the stamps. Mm-hmm. But my biggest interest now is revenue stamps, because they go back even further. And... You know, when you buy a house, 
Uh, a copy of the deeds is stored by the government somewhere. I have no idea where. And you get a copy of the deeds for your house. And so right back to when Van Riebeck landed here, people were being given deeds for their land, and they stayed in the family. And they held these. They didn't throw them in the dustbin like you might a cinema ticket. Right. And, uh, and so I've got a collection of uh, revenue documents. My earliest is 1670. Wow. It's a bit after Rebeck, 18 years after. 1670. They didn't have then. But then by 1711, they started applying stamps to say you had paid the tax, Mm -hmm. just like we pay tax when we buy a house. They were embossed stamps, Mm -hmm. and later they became Mm -hmm. adhesive stamps. Mm -hmm. But so the story of stamps goes back to early days, long before postage stamps in South Africa. What is, is, is this an example that I'm putting up here now? These revenue yes, documents. It is. Let, this is it. Let me let me let me just talk you through this document. Okay. This document, it's uh, the Missionary Society in London owned land in Rhodesia, mm-hmm. and they wanted to sell it. So they needed a South African who could uh, act uh, as their agent to sell the land. Right. So they needed a power of attorney. So they they issued this document, a power of attorney. Can you see my needle pointer there? Uh, n- oh, no, no, I'm afraid we can't. You can't. Okay, yeah. not serious. You'll just have There's to an embossed red t- 10 shillings uh, stamp there. Yeah. That was the cost of a power of attorney <laughs> in England. Oh, wow. All right. So, so that's a revenue stamp. But then they had to get it verified. So they, uh, they went to the notary public, and the nearest one happened to be the Lord Mayor of London. <laughs> yeah. So they went to the Lord Mayor's office. He applied the stamp at the bottom left okay. and charged the shilling, and that was his own stamp for his revenue service. He signed it, Lord Kyniston Stud, yeah. uh, Lord Mayor, and rubber stamped it, Lord Mayor. <laughs> so now this is a document in England, but it's got to be sent to South Africa. So they send it to South Africa, and at this end, we, we, we use this to grant the power of attorney to the seller. Right, And that shilling stamp top left was applied because while power of attorney costs 10 shillings in UK, it's only one shilling here. Hmm. However, you must pay the tax within 21 days, according to our tax laws. And having come out here by ship, it didn't get here in time. That's unbelievable. And so it was penalized <laughs> for late oh, wow. payment. Yeah. And that stamp next to overprinted Buta, accounts for penalty, yeah. pays the penalty because they couldn't get it here from the Lord Mayor's office in 21 days. That then became a, a, a proper power of attorney, and the land was sold. So on this one but document, in, we really have... Interestingly, uh, 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 the reason I bought that yeah. was because it says Buta in Afrikaans, and all the other stamps of the period were in English. <laughs> but it's interesting that Herzog, who was prime minister from 24... He was trying to get uh, Afrikaans into the South African uh, system where English had been dominant. Right. But his only early success was a small number of revenue stamps, which he got overprinted Buta instead of penalty. <laughs> so on this... I believe this is the only one I've ever seen on document. So this, this one document here is, is, is yeah. four or five different stamps and all of them 
tell a story. This is tell what you were story. saying earlier. It's, it's not just about the actual stamps and their, their monetary value or their rarity or anything else. It's actually the story of this, this piece of land and how many different mm. stamps had to be attached to it. It's phenomenal. And these things people have in their archives. Mm. So if you do have anything, you know, that contact philatelists and say, I've got these documents. Don't take the stamps off because you've lost the story. Mm. Right. Uh, you yep. might be told there's thousands of them, take it off. But uh, for many of them, the story is worth far more than the stamp itself. Now, tell me about the, 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 the post office savings accounts that so many people had in those days. And here we have an example of a post office savings bank. And I remember my grandmother opened up one of these for me and my brother when we were little kids. I don't know whatever happened to them. I don't know if they're still there gathering dust. I'm not sure what, what, uh, what value they had. What do, we, what do we need to know about these? I, yeah, I've got an extensive collection on the post office savings bank. Mm -hmm. uh, how the post office promoted thrift. And they did it in many ways. But what you're talking about, Gareth, is the way they attack, <laughs> attacked, I guess, the kids. <laughs> uh, that card at the bottom of the, uh, uh, the picture you showed yeah. was a card aimed for kids. And whenever they had two and a half cents, they bought one of these stamps and they stuck it on that card. Uh, and I have, a, as I say, an extension, extensive collection relating to the savings bank. So the <laughs> item top left is the back of a stamp booklet huh. promoting the bank. The block of stamps is a page from a stamp booklet. And the central ads, top and bottom, promote the savings bank in English and Afrikaans. The card at the bottom is the card you saved on. And once you had filled it, you went to the post office and they gave you a union loan certificate if it was prior to uh, 1961. Or they gave you a, a simply a national savings certificate after that. And these savings certificates, you know, you bought them for 10 shillings. You kept them for five years. They were worth 12 shillings. Right. So these were to encourage saving by the kids, and they could do it one little stamp at a time. Phenomenal. Uh, t tell me quickly, because while we're on post offices, uh, here's, here's, an interesting, <laughs> here's an interesting selection of – these are from village post offices in British Honduras, which is now called Belize. Uh, these are apparently quite rare. Well, they're very collectible. When I lived in Belize for uh, a number of years, <laughs> and when I arrived, we were staying in a little place called Baking Pot. Now, if, if you stay in baking pot, you've got to start collecting the postmarks. Uh, it, they're just so amusing. Just down the road from us was a little village called Black Man Eddie. And nobody could tell me who Eddie ever was. Yeah. But, uh, but I did get a copy of the postmark that read <laughs> Black Man Eddie. And up there, probably they would say, go down to Black Man Eddie and post your letter. Wow. And uh, similarly, up the road was Tea Kettle. And so I, I was in London a few weeks ago, and I gave a, a presentation on British Honduras. This was pre-war I was giving, village post offices, because a lot of these places only had a, two or three uh, literate people in the early years, but they had lovely names, all named after something that had happened in the village. I love that. So the, the place was actually called Gallon Jug or baking pot, place you stayed in, tea kettle, yes. and double-head cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, double-head cabbage. We actually took our honeymoon there, my wife and I, to, uh, 
to Belize. And she was amazed. I would say, wait, wait, there's another post office there. We're going to jump in and get a cancel. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, so, that, so I'm used to the raised eyebrows. <laughs> All right. So tell us a little bit about stamp design, because here we have uh, some, some different varieties of stamp design, all with the head of Queen Victoria, it looks like there. Um, okay. Again, a lot of collectors aren't as interested in the history as me. Some of them are interested in the stamps themselves. Right. Why were they issued? What for? And so they, they, uh, they look for archive material. Mm -hmm. They're always looking for uh, the printer's proof or even junk that came back of the print, out of the back of the printer's shop. They are willing to pay excessive prices for that. Uh, and with a little bit of corruption, the printers sometimes release it. Anyway, this stuff came from uh, Delarue in London. They printed these stamps in 1864. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine 50 pounds in 1864 was a lot of money in South Africa. Mm, huge. Enormous. Yeah. It was a high value stamp. And these are revenue stamps. So if you sold your property, you know, you would sell the uh, union buildings or something, uh, you would have to pay an awful lot of tax <laughs> and these stamps would be brought into play. So the first one is the hand-printed essay that came out of the archives. You'll notice government has been spelt wrong. Oh, wow. So, uh, government. Oh, government. <laughs> There's no N. Yeah. So obviously the education system was uh, not much different <laughs> from ours. <laughs> Uh, now, now, the center one when you say is hand, the proper. Hand, when you say hand-painted essay, that means someone actually painted that stamp by this hand. This is painted. The actual stamp size and is painted with a single hair of a paintbrush. Wow. Oh, my word. That is impressive. <laughs> Something like this costs you uh, uh, more than the cost of an ice cream. I think so. Uh, what about the die proof? Uh, this is the another die way. proof is also rare. That was on a big card. I've just uh, focused on the center of it. That's checking that the die was in good condition, and then they went ahead and printed the issued stamps. Hmm. Hmm. Now that, that issued stamp, uh, it was never bought across the post office. When Delarue were uh, reducing the stocks in their warehouse, they sold a lot of their uh, standard uh, items, their archive material and their proofs. Mm -hmm. And so this one actually came straight out of Delarue, not off a document. And it was bought by Fabergé. Oh, the guys who you, made, the, uh, made the... The fellow who had these high-value eggs, the yes. collector's eggs, the Russian uh, 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 oligarchs we call yeah. them today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, the czars. Now... No. Yeah. So this came from the Fabergé collection, so that's why it's in such fresh uh, condition. It never saw a post office or revenue office. What, what do you think of yeah. an issued stamp like that last one with the, the, the Cape of Good Hope written on it and the, the, the head of, it, of probably Queen Victoria? What do you think that's worth? The issued stamp itself, you'd probably pay £500 for it. Wow. So 10 times the value sure. stated on it. And only about 120 years of history there. That's phenomenal. Yeah, you don't, you don't buy stamps as an investment these days. You know, they, people keep asking, what's it worth? We have Facebook page and a, mm. a website page. I'd like to share the details with you before I ring off. Sure. Uh, and what people do is they say, oh, I found this. What's it worth? And it's, you know, two-thirds of a stamp that's come out of a back pocket that's, uh, uh, that nobody in their <laughs> right mind would want. 
and and they publish put these things on but every now and again you get the fantastic stuff someone says granddad had a collection he hasn't touched it for 50 years and you find this magnificent stuff so tell us quickly about the things to look out for on on a on a stamp or a stamp collection or on a document what do we need to look for if we want to try and assess whether it's worth collecting whether it's special whether there's something rare about it well these are a couple of items with a nice story behind them um British Honduras, as I said, it's one of the, my collecting areas, so mm-hmm. uh, so I know a bit more about it than other places. But in British Honduras, they issued half-cent stamps. There was never a half-cent coin. And these were printed in sheets and given to charities. Right. And the charity then split them up and put them into packets to give to children. Yeah. And so these were sent to Action for the Crippled Kids, a British charity. And one sheet of 25 was printed in error without the value and the country name. Oh, wow. And in the story wow. there, I if others can read it, 18 had already gone into packets with tens of thousands of other stamps, never to be seen again. And the lady who ran the office found the last seven yeah. and rescued them and sold them separately. And they earned a lot more money for the uh, charity than the 18. <laughs> 18 went out to the kids. So somewhere in a kid's collection, maybe, there's one of these things that he got for free from his church. Hmm. And he doesn't know what it is. And it doesn't have a country name. So he'll never know to look it up unless you find it. And those, those, you said there were only 18 that went out. 18 went out to the kids. The other seven are in collector's hands because they were then sold off. Those must be extremely valuable. Correct. Wow. <laughs> but they're there and they'll cost you nothing if you find it. And some kid has maybe got it and doesn't know what it's worth. Maybe his <laughs> grandchildren will find it. Phenomenal. That really is spectacular. That one below is what we call the Bible stamp in South Africa. Okay. This was issued by South Africa, by the Republic, in 1987, I think it says in the postmark there. It looks like Hebrew. But just, before, just before issue, there was an objection from the church that if we apply a postmark to this stamp, we are uh, obliterating the name of God. Ooh. And they objected for re- religious reasons. And the, st- the instruction went out hours beforehand, don't sell the stamps. <laughs> One or two were sold because, you know, our communications aren't 100% perfect here. Yeah. That, that cover on the right, you know, while I was belittling first day covers, that's a first day cover. Uh, a collector friend of mine, uh, now deceased a few weeks ago, unfortunately, but he sold that about seven years ago for over 10,000 rand. Unbelievable. <laughs> on on bid, or bay, bid or buy in South Africa. So it's a first day cover. Looks like an ordinary first day cover, but you've got to know the backstory. You've got to know that that Bible stamp was never officially issued. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm, you, you say bid or buy. Have you taken to the Internet to source uh, things for your collection? Have you found, oh, yeah. found things I, I online? I can't find what I'm looking for here. My, my biggest interest is entertainment tax now, and I collect entertainment tax stamps of the world. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I, my first award for entertainment tax was for Russian entertainment tax, <laughs> where I was showing entertainment tax before the Russian Revolution uh, in Ukraine and in Russia. 
And so I've got correspondents uh, in all sorts of countries looking for cinema tickets and uh, stamp fairs and so on, which they send to me. And I was just telling someone the other day that in the last week, I've had communication from Russia and from Ukraine, from people who have been looking for stuff for me. They've both obviously expressed a little bit of an opinion on the, 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 the fracas that's going on at the moment. Yeah. And I was very interested to read that they both, the Ukrainians and the Russians, have the same view of Putin. <laughs> and, uh, and it's the opposite to what the South African government thinks. So in other words, not big mm-hmm. fans, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but one of the great things about this is that you have these correspondents and you can ask, what were the floods like in Bangladesh? What was this like? Because all these people who you've never met are uh, Facebook friends or internet friends, which you got through the hunt, in my case, for cinema tickets. So, Ian, how big in, in South Africa and in the world do you estimate this kind of collecting is? I mean, how many people do you know in South Africa? It, it seems like a fairly large community. We've got we've got uh, less than a thousand registered in South Africa. Okay. Uh, that's people who are affiliated and pay their money. You know, like in a golf club, you can affiliate to the South African Golf Union. Right. But we've got many, many more. We have stamp fairs most Saturdays up in the High Felt, in Kyalami, in Pretoria, and in uh, Edenware Bowling Club, and you get hundreds of people there. Phenomenal. So there are hundreds of uh, closet collectors who buy off the internet, who go to the uh, fairs, but who don't come to the societies because they don't want to mix in the evening or whatever. And so while, whereas in the old days, you would get 100 people at a society meeting, now you get 20. Yeah. And the other was, uh, they they do it on the computer. It's it's not uh, nothing to be scoffed at. I mean, 20 people who are that committed that they come to the society meetings is quite a big deal. I don't know how many other collections attract those sorts of levels of loyalty. Another thing I I need to know before we wrap up this conversation, is there a particular stamp that you're looking for? Maybe there's someone who's listening now and they've suddenly, you know, you've ignited some kind of interest in them and they go digging through their grandmother's stuff and they find, find, you know, a selection of stamps. Some of them might be quite valuable. Some of them might be absolute rubbish. But there's something you're looking for that you haven't found. Um, what, what's the elu- most like- what's the elusive yeah. thing? Well, my most likely potential success in South Africa is people finding old cinema tickets with entertainment tax stamps on, because people keep them. This was my first date. Yeah. This was my uh, uh, 21st uh, birthday. This was this. And you went to the circus or you went to the theater and you kept the program and you kept the tickets. And so often when I buy tickets, I get them in pairs because no, no. people went together. <laughs> and I never separate them, uh, even although they both tell exactly the same story. I always keep them together because that's the way <laughs> they were meant to be when they went to the show <laughs> in 1920. So beautiful. And you find these. That's really, it's really special. As you say, each of these, each of these things tells a story. And I think there's so many people who are listening to this now and thinking about collections that they might have or might want to start. And uh, if you can figure out those stories behind them, it just makes it that much more exciting and that much more interesting. When you go to the meetings, people share their stories. That's the the fun side of it. But can I give you our uh, website? Yes, of course. Go for it. 
It's www.stampsa.africa. Stampsa.africa, yeah. And the uh, Facebook page is Philatelic Federation of South Africa. Very good. Go stamps. And anyone can join and chat and ask where the nearest meetings are, and we'll give them all the information they want. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your, your collection, a part of it with us, and for telling us some, some of these amazing yes. backstories. It really is spectacular. Fantastic. And Ian, I hope we get to see you again soon. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome anytime, Gareth. Thanks no, very much for letting me letting me talk. I love talking. No problem at all. <laughs> I could have carried on listening for a lot longer. Thank you so much, Ian. Have a good week. All the best. Keep well. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, there it is. Bye. There it is, Collectomania. And, of course, it's brought to you by the South African Gold Coin Exchange and the Scoin Shop, who are big fans of collections. And if you have the the yen, the desire to start a collection, maybe you should start with coins. I mean, gold, good investment. Any kind of, uh, you know, gold's been a good investment for thousands of years. It's not about to stop being one. And it, uh, of course, is easy to do that with the Scoin Shop. Just go to scoinshop.com. That's coin with an S at the beginning of it, scoinshop.com. You can find out now uh, about what you might want to start your collection with, whether it's stamps or it's coins or it's anything else. Tell us about it too. By the way, if you are a collector of interesting or unusual things, if you know of somebody who is and you want to uh, tell us that story, just like Ian did today, then get hold of us on contact at cliffcentral.com. We would love to hear from you. Cliffcentral.com.